you turn in your Bibles for our first scripture text to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 11. And this will be preliminary to our sermon text, which comes again from 1 Peter chapter 3. This week we'll be covering verses 13 to 22. We begin, however, with, 11, uh, with the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Hear then the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And now let us turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll begin at verse 13. Peter writes to the suffering church, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in whom also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, 
during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word together. Friends, it is the sheer grace of God, of course, the sheer grace of God alone that empowers a man to repent of his sins and begin exercising faith. This faith that you now exercise as a Christian no longer is a faith that rests in yourself or your own talents and skills decisions, bloodlines, grade point average, professional resume, or any other factor that centers on yourself. It is, in fact, a faith that rests entirely outside of you. It's a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This divine grace received through faith relieves your weary conscience of its crushing burden of sin and guilt before God, who is the judge of all the earth. It's a relief. Because until now, until that moment you repented and began to exercise faith, until now, all your life you'd been a slave to sin. And all your life, that master, sin, had been beating you up and had been testifying against you. It was absolutely intent on achieving before God your conviction and death before that righteous judge. Such is the malignant power of reigning sin in the heart of the unconverted. It will kill you. Inside, you were miserable. Nothing made you truly, lastingly happy. Happiness at its very best, back in those days, was fleeting. It was fleeting because every gray hair, every new wrinkle, every new age spot you saw in the mirror, reminds you that time isn't your friend. That time is actually working hard against you. That the inevitable day hastens on when stripped naked of every pretense, you are going to face the bench of that righteous, omniscient judge who created and sustains you. And you'll give then an answer. You'll give an account of yourself on that day. 
And the thought of it terrifies you. Growing old terrifies you. Especially growing old alone. And to relieve your trembling conscience, the best you can do is to try thrusting away the very thought of that inevitable day. But behind everything you know, it's coming. That's the way we once were. But now, by the grace of God, received through faith, you are suddenly released from the iron grip of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They no longer hold you. Fear no longer grips you. Your conscience no longer condemns you because it has no such leverage to do so anymore in your thinking. For the man, woman, or child who is united by a genuine faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning, the old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. New and wonderful things are here. Because in Jesus Christ, you, the Christian, have received a clean slate and with it a clean conscience. Not one ounce of that burden of sin and guilt that you once carried all those years, not one ounce of it anymore belongs to you. So now in union with Christ by faith, you are able to stand tall. You're able to walk free. You are free from every debt before God except for that altogether welcome debt of loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because in the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, Christ at his resurrection made us alive together with him, having, he said, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Beloved congregation of the Lord, just think of it and marvel at it that our Lord Jesus Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification and being now before God declared just, declared righteous. You, the Christian, carry no burden of sin whatsoever before God. The cross of Jesus Christ has taken it all away. Now, speaking of a clean conscience, in the grammatically rather complex verse 
the 21st verse of 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle here writes of an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the way the phrase appears in our pew Bible, which is usually an exceptionally accurate translation. Here, I'm afraid it lets us down. A better translation of that Greek phrase appears in the authorized or King James version. The answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, what's the Apostle Peter talking about here? He's talking about baptism. Christian baptism isn't an appeal to God for a good conscience. In Christ Jesus, the good conscience is already your possession, your rightful possession. You don't need to make any further appeal for it. It's already been given. It's already yours. Your conscience, properly speaking, was wiped clean at your conversion and union with Christ by faith. So Christian baptism isn't asking for something that we don't already have. Rather, it's the answer, the response of that cleansed conscience to God, who by the death and resurrection of Christ cleansed it and set it free. This passage deserves a place in a preaching series on problem passages because of that attention-grabbing declaration earlier on in this 21st verse. Corresponding to that, the apostle writes, baptism now saves you. This is the classic proof text for the Roman doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that men, women, and children of every age are saved from the fires of hell by the sacramental application of water in baptism. And beloved, I want to make this perfectly clear that this passage in its context doesn't teach us any such thing. I want to show you this by what comes immediately before those words and by what immediately follows them. What has Peter just been telling the suffering churches to which he writes? Well, ever since verse 8, he's been urging us as Christians not to cave under the social pressures of fear and intimidation. He's saying, don't be the shy violet who's passively crushed under the foot of the wicked. Don't be that person. Maintain your steady testimony and word and deed for the Lord Jesus Christ. Always be ready to give a good account of the hope that is in you. Always do what's right, even if it means suffering for it. This Christian life of suffering unjustly simply means following after Jesus Christ, who suffered and died unjustly for sinners, the just for the unjust. And although he died in the flesh, the Holy Spirit, who indwelt him beyond measure, 
returned to his father and on the third day raised him again from the dead. The same Holy Spirit who preached the gospel throughout the Old Testament to those who are now dead. And then what he does is cite Noah's generation in particular. Noah was a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Now you may ask, how is this so? How is Noah a type of Christ? Well, think about it. In his generation, Noah found singular favor in God's eyes, didn't he? Noah stood alone against the ungodly mockers and scoffers of that generation. Obeying God, for the better part of 120 years, Noah preached righteousness while building with his own hands the only means by which men might be saved from the deluge of God's wrath. Noah built an ark in which ultimately eight souls only were saved while countless millions outside the ark perished. And then Peter says in our New American Standard Bible, Pew Bibles, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And if we're going to understand this correspondence or correlation that he's referring to, we need to understand the antecedent of the word that. Corresponding to what exactly does baptism now save us? Now it's natural upon first reading this to understand the correlation that Peter's talking about as consisting uh, between the water of the Old Testament flood and the water of New Testament baptism. The similarity appears at first glance to lie in the presence of water in both cases. A lot of water in the case of the Old Testament flood, just a little water in the case of New Testament baptism. But there's a problem with that comparison, isn't there? Think about it for a moment. There's a problem. The problem with the comparison between the flood water and the water of baptism is that the flood water didn't save those eight people who were in the ark. The ark did. It was the ark in which those eight people were brought safely through the flood of God's judgment. So the antecedent to that in the phrase corresponding to that would seem to be not the water, but the ark. Corresponding to Noah's ark, baptism now saves you. But there's a problem here too, a grammatical one. The relative pronoun our New American Standard Bible translates as that in verse 21 is a neuter pronoun. But the word for ark Peter uses here is a feminine noun. If he'd meant corresponding to the ark, then he would have used a feminine relative pronoun, not a neuter one. But let me get past these 
grammatical technicalities and cut to the chase. The correspondence that Peter is talking about here in verse 21 isn't a correspondence between baptism and the flood, or even specifically between baptism and the ark. It's a correspondence between this whole deliverance of God's elect people from his coming wrath and judgment. The whole process and procedure of it. The whole salvation, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, the sovereign God's intention is the deliverance of his people from destruction. Corresponding to that salvation back in the days of Noah, baptism now saves you. That's the meaning of this bold statement of Peter that sticks in the craw of so many Calvinists. Baptism saves? Our well-instructed faith in the solas articulated during the Reformation recoils at the thought that baptism now saves us. If baptism now saves us, should we then recant our confession that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Must we now add baptism to the list of necessary ingredients? Well, that'd be fine for us, I suppose. But what about that poor thief on the cross? What about all those poor Christian parents whose covenant children die prenatally or die so young as to be without opportunity to be formally welcomed by baptism into the covenant community of the Lord's people? What about them? Well, to resolve this tension, this real tension, we need now to consider the passage in the context of what follows. We've looked at what lay ahead of it. Now let's look at what follows it. Because Peter explains more exactly what he means when he says, baptism saves us. First of all, thanks be to God, he tells us plainly, specifically, what he doesn't mean. I don't mean by this statement that the outward application of water to someone's skin, even if it's in the name of the triune God, saves anyone. That would be magic. That would be voodoo. It was this same Peter, after all, wasn't it, who after Philip had baptized Simon Magus back in Acts chapter 8, this same Peter later visited Samaria and told Simon, who'd been baptized, told Simon he had no part or portion in this matter, that he was in fact perishing, that he was still in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Baptism clearly hadn't saved Simon Magus. Because baptism isn't the mere washing of water, the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not baptism. So what is baptism? What does it mean? Clearly under normal circumstances, baptism plays 
an essential role in our salvation. So much so that the Lord's apostle can bluntly say, as he does here, baptism saves us. That's how important baptism is in the life of the believer. So we need to ask exactly what role does it play? The apostle tells us in this 21st verse that Christian baptism is literally the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's not your doing. It's your answer to what God's done for you. And as the proverb says, he kisses the lips who gives a right answer. It's a good thing to give the right answer. So it's absolutely true. The reformers were right. Our covenant God calls us into life and sweet fellowship with him by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now covenantally united to him by a vital faith, Christ, our great high priest, single-handedly shoulders the full weight of our sin and guilt. In exchange for our sin and guilt, he clothes us with his unblemished righteousness. And in so doing, he lifts the entire burden of sin from the believer's formerly troubled conscience. That is the work of God. But now the relieved conscience has to respond, doesn't it? How can we not respond to so great a salvation? We who were once slaves to sin, we're now walking free, standing tall, living our lives how can we not respond? Not very long ago, you were standing at the precipice that overlooks eternity. There you were once, right on the brink, your toes hanging over the crumbling edge, looking dizzily down into the dark flames, the smoking valley of Gehenna, where lay according to the prophet Isaiah, the corpses of the men who transgressed against the living God. You were gazing into the pit where their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. Dear ones, you were there, and so once was I. And just as our knees began to buckle under us, standing there on the brink, each one of us felt a strong hand on his shoulder and heard a voice in our ears saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How should we answer such an invitation out of eternal burning and into eternal bliss? 
How shall we answer? The Apostle Peter's answer to such a question was steadfast from the very beginning to the very end of his apostolic ministry. What shall we do? When that question was on the lips of so many thousands of people on the day of Pentecost, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This baptism that saves you isn't the mere application of water, the outward removal of dirt from the flesh. It's a response to what God's already done. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. We're nearing the midpoint of the month of June already. June, which is the wedding month. So as we close our consideration of this difficult passage before us today, let me just say this. If you're still having trouble comprehending how it can be that baptism now saves us, let's bear this in mind. By means of the gospel preached to countless millions of lost and perishing sinners, Jesus Christ is today effectually calling his bride. Out of all of these nations, he's effectually calling his bride. All well and good. Thanks be to God that he is. But what's that got to do with baptism? Just this. And I want you to think about it. No wedding ceremony, no marriage is binding. No wedding feast is celebrated until both parties have looked into one another's eyes and said, I do. Both parties. Baptism brings this covenant arrangement full circle. It's not the bride's proposal. It's not her appeal. It is her proper heartfelt response to him who died and was raised for us. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Amen.